The following message is from Grace on the Ashley Baptist Church, located in Charleston, South Carolina. For more information about Grace on the Ashley, visit graceontheashley.org. I think uh, your life is probably like mine, that uh, circumstances of life give us plenty of opportunities to have a soul that's anything but still. Does that happen in your life? Things get stirred up and anxieties and fears and all those things begin to swirl. And sometimes you just need to be reminded that the one who controls the winds and waves is still in control. And uh, stills the soul. Praise God for the work of Christ and for the Spirit of God that dwells within us. I want to invite you, if you would, to turn with me to 1 Timothy chapter 1. We uh, sort of launch into uh, a study of 1 Timothy a couple of weeks ago, just before Easter, and uh, by doing an introduction to the book, and we, we sort of uh, jump into verse 3 through 7 this morning to uh, sort of launch into the, the bulk of, of what Paul has to say to his young lieutenant in the faith, Timothy. So I invite you to turn with me and follow along as I read God's Word. First Timothy chapter 1, beginning in verse 3, Paul writes, As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia... Remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies, which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. But certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussion desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they're saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. It's the word of the Lord for us this morning. I'm excited about getting into 1 Timothy. As I've read this more and more in preparation for preaching the series, the more I read it, the more... I'm just excited about the practical instruction that the Lord intends for us. And I believe the, the wonderful fruit that He's going to bring to bear in our lives and the life of our church as we, as we sort of embark on this beautiful and rich study. Uh, but what we find here at the beginning of this, just by way of, of sort of uh, getting you back into the, uh, to the sort of the flow of 1 Timothy, is you've got Paul who planted a church in the city of Ephesus, modern-day Turkey. Paul planted the church. He invested in that church for several years himself personally. And then he moved on about his church planting ministry uh, throughout the region. And he left behind a young man named Timothy. He was his protege. He was a young man that he had met earlier, several years earlier in his life. And this young man had come to Christ. He had been... Uh, brought to Christ at some point in his life. He had a mother and a grandmother who taught him the Scriptures from birth. And when he intersected with Paul, he, he latched on to Paul, and Paul began to mentor him personally. And he followed along with Paul, and he was really the guy that was the go-to guy for the Apostle Paul. He was with him in so many places. He helped him to write many of the books in which uh, we have in our New Testament that Paul wrote. I mentioned Timothy in the beginning. And Timothy was often the guy that Paul would leave behind when he moved on to the next place to see to it that things continued to roll on as they ought to. And that's where we find him when we get into this book of 1 Timothy. Timothy is at Ephesus, and Paul has gone on about his church planting ministry. And Timothy is a young man in a difficult place trying to navigate the local church. 
And so Paul writes this because he knows that there are some challenges that have crept up in the life of the church. There are some problems that have arisen. And he knows that Timothy needs some help. He needs some instruction. He needs some encouragement. He needs uh, his, his father in the faith to reach out to him and to invest in him and to speak into his life and into the life of the church. And so this letter is essentially that. It's Paul speaking into young Timothy's life and speaking into the life of this church. And he has so much to say that has so much value for us. But the way this letter begins is really unique. He, 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 normally when Paul writes a letter, he has all these greetings and thanksgivings at the beginning. He doesn't do that in 1 Timothy. He jumps right into what seems to be the most pressing issue at this church. And he jumps right in in verse 3, and he says to Timothy, As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus. Remain at Ephesus. Paul is right at the outshoot wanting to say to Timothy, Timothy, don't give up the ministry. Don't take off. It seems to, to be that, that, that quite possibly Timothy was sort of at his wit's end with the local church and with that particular ministry. It seems that he's been doing battle on the local church scene long enough that he's getting potentially discouraged and frustrated and perhaps thinking about you know, just abandoning his post and taking off and getting out of there. And there was a lot going on at this church. There was opposition to the church from without. Uh, there was resistance to his leadership due to his age from within the church. He was a young man, and he was having challenges because people weren't respecting him due to the fact that he was young. There were false teachers within the church that were propagating false doctrine that he was having to deal with. And it doesn't help that he's in the middle of a pagan city, and, and there's all these pressures from the outside uh, because of that. And there's opposition, severe opposition, and, and literal persecution of his own personal life in the church is really on the horizon. Lots of reasons why a man would want to give up and quit and move somewhere else. So right at the outshoot here, Paul says to him, Timothy, I'm writing because you need to remain at Ephesus. Don't leave your post. Don't give up the work. Don't go somewhere else. Don't look for a greener pasture. Don't look for a better flock. Stay put where you are. Stay there. I need you there. He knows that Timothy is the last line of defense in this church. If Timothy abandons his post, the church is going to crash and it's going to burn. Now, Paul had established this church on truth, and we can read all about that in the book of Acts. But look how he characterizes the church in chapter 3, verse 15. He says, If I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God. Before this, he says, this is why I'm writing, so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God. And listen to how he characterizes the church. The church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of what? Of truth. The church is a, a pillar and a buttress of truth. Now, there are all sorts of descriptions of what the church is in the New Testament, but this one is a critical one. The church is a pillar and a buttress of truth. What, what the church has that no other institution in the world has is the truth. We have the Word of God, the Word, the very words of the living God in our possession. They are the truth. They define the truth. And they're the only truth that people need in order to know God, the one who made them, to be reconciled to Him and to walk in a life that pleases Him. The church possesses the truth. It is for the church the pillar and the buttress truth. If the church loses the truth, it loses everything. And whatever is left is just a shell that has no substance. And the reality is this. Wherever God's truth is established somewhere, 
the enemy's lies are not far away. Wherever the truth of God gets established somewhere, the enemy's lies are not far away. That's true about your own heart. If the truth of God is established in your heart, there will be a lying enemy that will surround you through friends and through other people and through circumstances and through a culture that's hostile that will constantly be coming at that truth. And if you're a church that cares about the truth, there's going to be an active enemy who's going to seek to undermine it. He'll do anything he can to confuse the truth, to undermine the truth, to water down the truth, to contradict the truth. Because the enemy of your soul knows this. He knows that it's the power of God is invested in the Word of God to transform your life. That if your life is going to be transformed from someone who follows after his own lust and just lives for sin and self-pleasure to be into a life that pleases the Lord, it's going to come because the Word of God intersects your life and by the power of the Holy Spirit, the power of the Word of God comes to life within you and you're transformed into the image of Christ. He knows there's power in the Word of God. He'll do anything he can to confuse it, to undermine it, to water it down, to contradict it. And so there's an enemy that rages in all-out, non-stop war on the truth, wherever it resides. He's perfectly content with lots of people gathering in churches and doing religious rituals. He's perfectly content with everybody in the whole culture saying that they're a Christian. He's perfectly content with people doing religious things and doing good works and kind deeds in the name of their faith. He's perfectly content with big crowds gathering in buildings like we've gathered in today so long as the church isn't serious about the scriptures so long as they're laughing and joking and playing around and telling stories so long as they're giving self-help talks and spiritualized secular advice he's perfectly content with that but what he hates what he's in an all-out war against is a church that takes the word of God seriously that cares about the truth And he'll do whatever he can to do to, to bring it down, to bring it down. And Timothy, young Timothy, is right in the thick of this. He is right in the thick of the battle where this is raging all around him. And so as we read the book, we see Paul constantly challenging him. Timothy, stay where you are. Don't give up. Just a quick survey. Um, in, in chapter 1, verse 18, I, maybe these will pop up on the screen for you. I don't know. Um, the charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, wage the good warfare. You see that? In verse 16 of chapter 4, keep a close watch on yourself and on your teaching. Persist in this. In chapter 6, verse 12, fight the good fight, the fight of faith. And at the very end of the book, O Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you. Do you hear Paul's urgency? Timothy, don't give up. Keep fighting the fight. Keep, Keep battling this thing. Guard the trust. Stay at it. Don't give up. It's worth fighting for. You see, Paul is struck with the danger of false doctrine and the danger of lies getting mixed in with the truth in the life of the church. He understands a reality that all of us need to understand, and that's this, that every church is simply one generation away from irrelevance, heresy, and uselessness. That's all it is. Any church established in the truth is just simply one generation away from heresy, uselessness, irrelevance. All it takes is for one generation of pastors and one generation of church folks to abandon the truth, to, to, to slide on the truth, to neglect the truth, and get diverted onto other things. And the next generation comes up without the truth. 
and the church is corrupted. And so Paul's great concern for this church at Ephesus is what he goes after right in the very first paragraph. There are false teachers who have risen up in the church who are teaching lies and false doctrine and they're undermining the truth. And it is a grave threat to this body. And so Paul warns Timothy, stay at it, fight against it, shut these people down. And the great danger they pose is not just that they teach false doctrine, but that they teach false doctrine while looking just like sheep. Back in Acts chapter 20, verse 25 and following, this is earlier in history. Paul has leaving, he's already left Ephesus, and he sails back by, and he stops in Ephesus, and he jumps off the boat, and he meets with the Ephesian elders. And he says to them in their last face-to-face meeting in Acts chapter 20, verse 25, he says this, Now behold, I know that none of, them, none of you among whom I've gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. That's it. This is our last meeting. Pay careful attention to yourselves and all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know, I know, after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after him. Therefore, be alert. It's like Paul knew that it was right on the periphery of the church, right? That there are these people that are going to rise up after I'm out of here. And they're not going to be primarily those who come from the outside. They're going to be people who rise up from within. People who you know. People who have already been a part of the body. And people maybe who have even been previously orthodox are going to rise up and begin to, to, to twist the truth. And teach false doctrine. And he describes them in very vivid language. They are fierce wolves among the sheep. They are nothing to be trifled with. They they are nothing to excuse. They are nothing to overlook. They are people who have the power to destroy. To destroy the body. And it's going to happen. And just somewhere in the neighborhood of five years after Paul said those words, he's writing 1 Timothy. And guess what's happened? Exactly what he said was going to happen. Has happened. And Timothy is dealing with it. The challenge is, these false prophets, they are wolves in the mix of sheep, and they look like sheep. From the outside, the casual observer can't tell the difference between the true and the false thing. The undiscerning eye can't just look at them on the surface and say, oh, that's a bad dude there. Now they disguise themselves within the body, and they hide. They try to blend in. And that's what makes their deception so destructive. They're imitators of the real thing. They're, they're cheap knockoffs. They're frauds who appear one way, but in reality, they're something altogether different. So the question is, how do we identify these folks when they cross our radar? If we're to be the kind of people in a church, and I'm to be the kind of pastor who's looking out, who's, who's on the alert, who's paying attention, who's watching life and doctrine closely, if I'm to be that kind of a person, then how do we identify those Who are these false teachers when they arise before they can do their damage? Well, Paul thankfully gives us 
sort of a, a grid of characteristics, and that's what I want to spend our time with today. We'll just sort of fly across the surface of these things today, but you can peruse it a little more deeply on your own. I'm just going to give it to you in bullet points. What do false teachers look like? What are these ones at Ephesus look like that are doing all this damage, these fierce wolves? How do we identify them? Well, the first thing he tells us in chapter 1, verse 3, is this. <clears throat> they pursue novelty. They pursue novelty. He says, remain in Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine. Timothy, there's some people within the body that that, that love novelty. They're not content with the truth as it's been laid down in front of them. They're not content with Jesus Christ, dead, buried, raised. They're not content with deny yourself, take up your cross and follow Christ. They're not content with the plain teaching of Scripture. They want something novel. They want something outside of that. They want something new. They want something different. They're constantly in the pursuit of different doctrine. And false teachers are like that. They love novelty. They love something new and something different. They love to find new things to say. They love to be the one that stands in front of God's people and says, let me tell you something you've never heard before. They love to stand in and say, I was reading God's Word this week, and you'll never believe what, what, I, what I found. And I bet you've never heard anybody say this before. It's new. It's novel. They love that, finding new things. The reality is they don't find new things because God's truth has been around for a long time. And smarter people than all of us together have perused it and studied it in great depth. And if in all these generations nobody's said anything about it, the reality is it's not there. But that doesn't stop the false teacher. He presents made-up doctrine as biblical truth. He loves novelty. He loves it. Now, novelty will attract a great crowd, won't it? You can attract a crowd with novelty. How many of you saw the movie The Greatest Showman? Fictional account of P.T. Barnum's life. Um, Yeah, I liked the film. The music was was pretty cool. You may not have liked it. That's okay. I love you anyway. Um, But the whole story of P.T. Barnum's life, right, was how did he... How did he become famous and how did he, you know, make a fortune there? He did it by collecting oddballs and novelties, people who were unique and different from the rest of the world and putting them on display. And he knew that if he can collect a bunch of novelties, that people will pay money to come see the novelty. And that was his whole shtick, was attracting a crowd with novelty. And that's how he'd advertise it. Come, come see something you've never seen before. Come hear something that you've never heard before. How many of you have been to the, like this, the county fair? Come on. Popcorn, peanuts, elephant ears, you know, all that good stuff. Fried snicker bars. You had them, right? Don't look at me like that. I already did my Navy PRT. I can, I can eat those things. You know, the county fair is still around if you go to it. You still, if you walk, my son and I did this this year in the fall. We walked through the county fair. And you always run across. They're always there at the booths, right? Pay your money. Come see the three-headed snake lady. Right? Wolf Boy is behind the curtain. Or Spider Girl. Or whatever kind of creepy weird thing that they put a picture on. It's all novelties, right? It's come pay me your money and I'm going to show you something that you've never seen before. And it obviously works because they're still there. Somebody somewhere takes out their wallet and they put money in the tank to go see the three-headed snake lady. And I don't know why they do it, right? But they do, clearly. It's the novelty that sucks them in. Something different, something new, something you've never seen before. Novelty sells. 
Well, false teachers love novelty. They use theological novelty to gain a hearing. They use theological novelty to get people to follow them. They find things in the Bible nobody else has found. They take selected Bible verses and they twist them and they spin them. And they they put them out there in some new and fresh way that nobody's ever heard. And the listeners are sitting there and they go, Wow, this guy's a genius. I've never heard anything like this before. And it's exactly what the false teacher wants. And that's what they're doing in Ephesus. They're pursuing novelty. And Paul says to Timothy, Timothy, you're going to charge these people not to do this. That charge is command. The word is command. You need to go command these people to shut up and to stop it. Because what they're doing is propagating lies. And he says, he says to them this, don't look, charge them not to teach any different doctrine. Any different doctrine from what? From the, the foundation that Paul had already laid of the, of the pure gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Stick to the gospel. Stick to what we know. Stick to the truth. Jesus died, buried, raised. Stick to deny yourself. Take up your cross. Follow Christ. Stick to the things that are clear and true. Tried. Tested. Don't follow somebody who's chasing after novel doctrines. By the way, if you flip to the back of your Bible... And you look in Revelation 22 at the very end, verses 18 and 19, Jesus speaks to this issue. He gives a pretty stern warning. He says this, I warn everyone who hears these words of prophecy, if anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in the book. If anyone takes away from the words of this book of prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life in the holy city. It's a pretty egregious thing to start adding to God's word. To start making up your own novel doctrines and teaching it as God's. It's not something to do. Listen, friends, a faithful shepherd doesn't try to impress you with novelty. He doesn't try to impress you with novelty. A faithful teacher doesn't impress you with novelty. The kind of teacher you need to follow is the kind of teacher that looks into God's Word and says to you, here's what the Word of God says. Here's what it's always said. And here's what it means to you. Somebody comes across your your radar, they're teaching, they're preaching. You ask the question, does what they're saying, does what they're teaching reflect the truth of God's Word that I know? Or is it something novel? If it's novel, you need to walk away from it and shut it off. Because it has the potential to destroy your soul. False teachers love novelty. There's a second thing that they do. They're obsessed with the insignificant. They're obsessed with the insignificant. Listen to what he says. Nor, verse 4. Nor to tell them to, to, to quit with the false doctrine, nor to devote themselves <clears throat> to myths and endless genealogies which promotes speculations rather than the stewardship from God that's of faith. <clears throat> Another thing that false prophets and false teachers love to do, they love to be obsessed with things that don't matter. They love to find some little tiny something that, that gets them all fired up and excited, and they love to just obsess over that and to put it out there as though it's the most important thing in the world. And in this particular case, he tells us that these particular false teachers, are that they've devoted themselves to some myths and some endless genealogies. He doesn't explain what those things are, but we know what a myth is. It's something that's made up. It's something that isn't true. It's something that's fabricated. And endless genealogies has to do with sort of the, the Jewish backdrop of their faith. The bottom line is they're obsessed with these, these man-made Doctrines that are myths and they're endless genealogies and they're insignificant. And that, but yet that's what they're obsessed with. Another way of just summarizing it is this. To say that false teachers, they major on the minors and they minor on the majors. That's what they do. 
If you come across a teacher who's majoring on the minors all the time and not, and also minoring on the majors, I almost confused myself for a minute there, you, you stay away from that person. Somebody who's obsessed with some insignificant thing off on the side and that's all they want to talk about is their soapbox and they just go after that all the time to the neglect of the gospel, to the neglect of Jesus, to the neglect of the cross, to the neglect of the resurrection, to the neglect of walking with the Lord in obedience and following Him in a practical sort of faith that reflects holiness. When somebody avoids those things and is obsessed with all these insignificant peripheral issues, you better know in the back of your mind they're probably a false teacher. You know these people. They're always off on a tangent. They teach out of the white space in the Bible instead of the black space. Examples. You can go online and just find these things all together. I perused a little bit about this week. You'd be amazed by how much there is on the Internet of people arguing back and forth about this very important issue about whether or not Adam and Eve have a belly button. Seriously. No joke. Google it. Google it. You'll, it's true. I mean, endless debate. I mean, people obsessed with that issue. Adam and Eve could not have had a belly button. They did not have a biological parent. There was no umbilical cord for Adam and Eve. It would be disingenuous of God to give them a belly button to look like they were something that they are not. People are passionate about that. Devote a lot of time and energy to that issue. And it's insignificant. Who gives a rip whether he had a belly button or not? I don't care. Get to heaven, we can ask him. You know, think about it. Brad, is this going to happen to you? You're going to get to heaven. First thing you do is, where's Adam? I need to check out that dude's belly. I need to find out the thing I've been wondering about all these years. Has he got a belly button? No. It doesn't matter. Nobody's going to care about that. Because it's it's totally insignificant. And yet people are obsessed with it. And there are teachers who are obsessed with it. A few years back, there was a book called The Da Vinci Code that came out. You probably heard about it. There was a movie. It sold over 80 million copies. It was nothing more than resurrected heresies that have already been dealt with in generations past. But it was a book that promoted nothing but, but, but uh, sort of myths, old, proven to be false myths, repackaged in a modern setting. And people just ate it up. Absolutely ate it up. I mean, taught of things like, you know, Jesus was married to Mary Magdalene. He, the church spent centuries covering it all up. It's, he's not divine. The Bible isn't true. You know, all of this stuff, getting their information from already previously discredited Gnostic Gospels. But it was new and it was novel. And not only that, it was promoted as significant. And people ate it up to the tune of 80 million copies and lots of money at the movie theater for a really crappy movie, too. You find these people who are obsessed with finding numbers in the Bible. You run across those, you talk to them. It's like, yeah, if you go to Genesis chapter 1 and you find the name Abraham, if you, all the letters in Abraham correspond to a number. And if you add all the numbers in the name of Abraham, then it's going to tell you exactly when a hurricane's going to show up. Or when Hitler rose. Or when World War III was going to go. There are people who are obsessed with that kind of stuff. Numbers and numerology. Things that are absolutely insignificant. They don't mean a thing. But they're false teachers who are obsessed with those kinds of things. And that's all they can think about. And it's all they want to teach. It's peripheral doctrine. Doctrine that doesn't matter. 99% of all 
theological debate on Facebook, right? It falls into this category. Insignificant. Things that don't matter. Stupid stuff that's insignificant. And what does it produce when you obsess with those kind of things? I'm glad you asked that question. Because Paul says it promotes speculations rather than stewardship from God that's by faith. And in chapter 6, he says this. Here's what it produces. Envy, dissension, slander, and evil suspicions. What, do you, what happens when false teachers begin to propagate and obsess over things that don't matter? It gets people arguing with each other. It gets people jealous of one another. And it wrecks the unity of the body. Again, see Facebook. The problem with all this is just distraction from the main thing. It takes people's minds and attention away from the gospel. And it's why the enemy uses that tactic. Third thing that false teachers do that we see here is at least in this case they were formerly orthodox. He says certain persons by swerving from these things have wandered away. It's clear that these false teachers used to be They used to be orthodox. They used to teach the truth. But at some point in their journey, something happened. And they swerved. They wandered off into some peripheral thing, into some other direction. They wandered off course. They missed the mark. Now, there's a a tendency in all of our hearts to, to wander. We just sang about that, right? Prone to wander. Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the Lord I love, the God I love. But these guys don't just feel it, they go with it. At one point, they were orthodox. They had the truth, they believed the truth, they taught the truth, but they got bored with the truth, and so they wandered off, they they veered off, they swerved into a different direction. Paul later describes them as this, he says they they have a shipwrecked faith. They have a shipwrecked faith. They, They got off course, and their whole faith, the whole ship of their faith is just wrecked. It's just wrecked. It's destroyed. In chapter 4, verse 1, and he says this. Now the Spirit expressly says in later times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and the teachings of demons. There you have it. There's the source. They swerve from the truth and they begin to chase after demonic deceptions. And they wandered off. I hope nobody in here went to Union Theological Seminary. Did anybody go to Union Theological Seminary? Okay. Um, Union Theological Seminary is in New York. And if you were to go back and read the original Constitution of the University from 1835, you would find this, that the founders of the university wrote this. They said this. Well, I'm going to back up and not read the whole thing because of time. What the, predominantly the new school founders meant was they, they talked about that this is a school founded on correct principles. And they put together a pledge that reflected the correct principles as they understood them. And here was the pledge that you had to sign to be on the faculty. I believe the scriptures of the Old and New Testament to be the Word of God, the only infallible rule of faith and practice. I do now, in the presence of God and directors of this seminary, solemnly and sincerely receive the Westminster Confession of Faith as containing the system of doctrine taught in the Holy Scriptures. I do also, in like manner, approve of the Presbyterian form of government. And I do solemnly promise that I will not teach or inculcate anything which shall appear to me to be subversive of said system of doctrines or of the principles of said form of government, so long as I shall continue to be a professor in this seminary. That's a pretty, pretty stout pledge, right? 1835, founded that way. Just a couple of weeks ago, 
the current president of Union Seminary, someone called Serene Jones, was interviewed by the New York Times about Easter. And here's some uh, excerpts of what the president said. Concerning the resurrection, quote, when you look in the Gospels, the stories are all over the place. There's no resurrection story in Mark, just an empty tomb. Those who claim to know whether or not it happened are kidding themselves. Crucifixion is not something that God is orchestrating from upstairs. The pervasive idea of an abusive God father who sends his own, his own kid to the cross so God could forgive people, that's nuts. For me, the cross is an enactment of our human hatred. But what happens on Easter is the triumph of love in the midst of suffering. What? What about the virgin birth? Oh, I find the virgin birth a bizarre claim. It has nothing to do with Jesus' message. The virgin birth only becomes important if you have a, a theology in which sexuality is considered sinful. It also promotes this notion that the pure, untouched female body is the best body. And that idea has led to centuries of oppressing women. All right, what about the afterlife? Surely you can get that part right. Afterlife, I don't know about that. What happens when people die? I don't know. There may be something, there may be nothing. My faith is not tied to some divine promise about the afterlife. Well, what about the nature of God? At the heart of my faith is, is a mystery. God is beyond our knowing, not a being or an essence or an object. But I don't worship an all-powerful, all-controlling, omnipotent, omniscient being. That's a fabrication of Roman judicial theory and Greek mythology. The writer, who is not a believer says to the president this. He asked the question, well, can I be considered a Christian by not believing in the virgin birth and the resurrection? To which the president answered, well, you sound an awful lot like me, and I'm a Christian minister. 1835 to now. Somebody swerved. Somebody wandered off way far away to where now we have a seminary president proudly proclaiming themselves as a Christian minister who doesn't have a clue who God is who has no idea what happens after you die who rejects the virgin birth, who rejects the resurrection of Jesus and essentially every essential doctrine of the faith and yet it's a seminary that's putting out ministers who teach a version of Christianity absent all that the danger is incredible. And what I would have you note about this is swerving and wandering, the way he describes it, that's not intentional stuff. That's stuff that just happens when you don't guard yourself, when you don't pay attention. Right? When you're driving. You ever done that? You're driving and you just make the wrong turn because you're not paying attention? I've done that before. I can remember one time I did that and I ended up, I went a long way before I realized I was going the wrong way. I realized like, I'm like 20 miles out of the way. Now i got to backtrack. I didn't intend to do that, but I wasn't paying attention, so I swerved. And I wandered off in the wrong way. And that's what happens in our spiritual lives. And that's why Paul keeps telling Timothy, Timothy, watch your life and your doctrine closely. Timothy, guard the trust. Timothy, stay on it. Pay attention. Don't let your guard down. Because if you do, you'll swerve just like these teachers. And you'll wander just like they did. And you'll end up a long ways away from where you ever dreamed you'd be. Two last things about these folks. They're self-exalting. In verse 7, we find this. They're desiring to be teachers of the law. Now we get to the heart of it. These false teachers, here's what the deal is. They admired the Jewish rabbis. 
they admired the way the Jewish rabbis had clout and had authority and people looked up to them and admired them as the experts and as the teachers of the law. They liked the way that those men received honor and glory from the crowds and they wanted that for themselves. So they had sort of self-styled themselves into sort of a, a Christianized version of a Jewish rabbi and they wanted to be teachers of the law. They wanted people to look up to them. They wanted people to honor them and to, to hold them in, in high regard. They're self-exalting. They're not content with just planting the church and teaching the truth. They want to be considered experts. They want to gain a following. They're, they're obsessed with titles. And when you navigate around them, they're all about themselves. And that's really the distinction between the false teacher and the faithful shepherd and the faithful teacher. When you encounter the false teacher, you walk away... And your mind is thinking about the person. And that, 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 guy was, that guy was persuasive. That guy was impressive. Wow. When you walk away from the faithful shepherd and the godly teacher, you're not thinking about the man. You're thinking about Christ. You're thinking about the Lord and the things of the Lord. He's not there to impress you with himself or his stature or his title or his appearance or his knowledge or his wisdom or his eloquence. He's there to invest in you the word of God. And the whole time he's saying, here's the word of God. Look to Christ. Here's the word of God. Look to Christ. Love Christ. Follow Christ. And when you follow his teaching, you walk away loving Christ and looking to Christ, not to the person. When you find a teacher who's parading themselves around, calling attention to themselves, you better watch out. When you find a teacher who's prancing around like a peacock, trying to dress to impress you, trying to talk to impress you, trying to come up with novel things to impress you, wanting to have particular titles for themselves so that you'll call them by that name so they can get some sort of honor or glory, you need to run from that person hard and fast because they don't give a rip about you. They're exalting themselves. And it's a simple test. When I listen to this teacher, do I come away thinking about Christ or do I come away thinking about them? It's an easy test. False teachers are self-exalting. And finally, in verse 7, it says the last characteristic. They are ignorant and arrogant. He calls them without understanding either what they're saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. Let me tell you something. The most toxic combination in a human being, this is just me making this up, but it's true to me. It may not be true to you. Let me just shift categories. God's Word isn't necessarily saying it the way I'm saying it to you. I'm just saying it from my perspective. The most toxic combination of a person to deal with is someone who is both exceedingly arrogant and exceedingly ignorant. You cannot do anything with that person. Have you ever run across them? People who are ignorant. They, 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 they confidently assert to you all the things that they know about all these things, and you're listening to them, and you think, you don't have a clue what you're talking about. You have, you have no idea what you're saying, but you're so confident and arrogant about it. I can't do anything with that. I can deal... All right, look, you can deal with this, right? You can deal with a knowledgeable person who's arrogant, right? They know what they're talking about. They're just arrogant. You can work with that in the area of humility. You can deal with an ignorant man who's humble because they're teachable. But the person who is both arrogant and ignorant, you can't do a thing with them because they're not teachable. You can't tell them anything because they already know everything. The only thing they don't know is how ignorant that they are. And because they're so arrogant, they won't receive it if you tell them. 
knock yourself out trying, but it's not going to go well. All you can do is pray that God would take down one of those pillars so that you can get to them. Arrogance and ignorance. That's in any space of life. That's in the church. That's in the theological realm. That's in the military realm. And I should have had an amen from the front rows there on that one. The people who are both ignorant and arrogant, what are you going to do with them? You can't do anything with them. And that's what these false teachers are. They're toxic. They're toxic. Because they know everything, and yet truly they don't know anything. But they have such confidence in their ignorance. That's a pretty that's a pretty notable list of characteristics. You run across a teacher, whether they come up within the body or from the outside that meet any of those characteristics or any combination of them, you need to shut that person off and not let them have influence in your mind. And you need to pursue those who are the opposite of those things. Paul says, you know what, in, in contrast to all that, you know what our charge is? He says it in verse 5, our charge is love. Our charge is love. That's what we're after. We come to you teaching the truth so that the truth will produce in your heart a love for God and a love for other people. And you know what? When you are under the teaching of faithful shepherds, that is the effect it will have in your life. It will drive you to love Christ and it will drive you to love other people better. If, if somebody's teaching is driving you to quarreling and arguing and debating and being divisive and being hostile and disrupting unity, that person who's teaching you is not a faithful shepherd. They're a false shepherd. And they don't care about your soul. And you need to shut them off. Faithful shepherds lead to love. They lead to love. And I'll tell you, if, if I could just sort of bring this to a conclusion in our own context, um, there are ways that these things sort of, even if you're not a, a teacher, there are ways that these characteristics begin to creep into your own soul and your own life and the way you navigate other people. It's easy for us to become obsessed with things that don't matter. It's easy for people in our little slice of the evangelical world to become so obsessed with our Reformed theology that, that we just, you know, we're devoted to debating our Calvinism versus the next guy's Arminianism. And I'm going to tell you, it's useless. It's, it's worthless. What's the point of that? It serves no purpose. It's a diversion from the gospel. People that get off on eschatology, whatever their end times perspective is, and they just want to pound and debate and argue with people about whatever their thoughts are about the end times. You know what? Here's what you need to know about the end times. Jesus is coming back, and when he gets here, you better be ready. That's what you need to know. That's what's essential. The rest of it, I mean, it's fine to work through it and figure it out for yourself and at least come to some conclusions, but to obsess over it, to argue about it, nah. It's insignificant. We need to be careful that we keep the main thing the main thing in our own lives. That we're not diverted on the things that don't matter. To myths and genealogies and irrelevant secondary side stuff. All those things serve to do is get us off the gospel. Get us away from Jesus, dead, buried, resurrected. Get us away from deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow Christ. You know what? If you just pursue those two things with all your heart, and you're devoted to those things, you won't have time for the other stuff. I'm going to tell you, every day for me as a believer, it's a battle to deny myself, take up my cross, and follow Jesus. That's hard. That's hard. That's work. That takes constant vigilance in my life. It's easy for me to debate doctrine with somebody. And I can do that and come off looking smart. 
And I could probably do that and impress somebody. It's easy. What's hard is denying myself and following Jesus every day and loving God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength and loving the people that God puts in my life. Devote yourself to those things and a faithful shepherd will call you regularly to do that. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, you're everything to us. You're everything to us. We're we're nothing without you. Help us never to become bored with the gospel. Help us never to be pursuing novelties because story's gotten old to us. Because we've heard about your death and burial and resurrection enough, it's just kind of lost its luster, and so we're pursuing other things that tickle our fancy, novel things, exciting things. Help us to see that those things are just a way that the enemy causes us to swerve to miss the mark, to wander away. Lord, I pray for my own self that I would be a faithful shepherd and not a false teacher. I pray for all those in this body who step up in a class, in a small group, one-on-one, in all the various ways that it happens to open your word and teach, that we would be the kind of teachers that are faithful shepherds, that point people to Christ and not to ourselves. Lord, I think if we're honest, all of these tendencies, these characteristics of false teachers, we find little roots of them in our own lives. Where they exist, I pray that by your Spirit you would make us aware of that right this very minute and that we would confess those tendencies and those sins to you and that we would seek your help in getting rid of that from our lives. And Lord, for the person who's here this morning who doesn't know you as their Lord and Savior, I pray that in these moments you draw them to yourself pray that what they've heard this morning is not me, but you. Do your work in us, Lord. We pray for Christ's sake. Amen. As we stand and sing a final song, I invite you, if you have questions about what you've heard or you want to know what it means to be a Christian, I'm in the back of the room and there are some other uh, elders and men back here who would love to pray with you, answer your questions. Just slip out while we're singing and it would be our joy to talk with you.